Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. going on Nuggets fans welcome to episode two of Full Court Press I am your host Brendan Vogt and if you're not familiar with the podcast which you're probably not because this is episode two uh, my aim here with this is to do something different than all the other Nuggets podcasts out there on your queue got a lot of guys that break down the game for you out of Mares, uh, Zach Mikosh the rest of the team at Stiffs MHS BSN the list goes on and on so with this podcast I just wanted to grab some of the cool media members in the Denver area sit down with them and, and just chat as human beings and, and take you as a listener and a reader of their content behind the scenes and, and dive into their process. Episode one was with Adam Mahas, editor-in-chief at Denver Stiffs. We talked about his Will Barton podcast, uh, some of the challenges he's faced from his perspective as a media member and more. It was a really, really cool discussion, and I was lucky enough to have another cool one with Matt Moore earlier this week. Matt writes for Action Network, which I'm sure you know. You probably know him on Twitter as Hardwood Paroxysm. This was really cool. This was exactly what I hoped for when I launched this thing because Matt was around when this sort of basketball mania thing, the blogging thing, was just starting. And he's around now where basically everyone and their grandma wants to get in on this and there are so very few jobs left. So we talked about just sort of the evolution of his writing and his career cast against that background of the evolution of the industry. And of course, we got into some personal stuff as well. You know, the challenges of of taking a pay cut and chasing your dream, particularly when you have to raise a family. I mean, I literally can't even fathom having that responsibility for another human being when trying to accomplish these goals. So this was really, really cool. I can't thank Matt enough for sitting down and doing this with me. Um, It starts with me asking him if he thinks he's one of the OG bloggers and influencers and and you know, he's pretty humble about it, but it's a really cool chat, and I think you'll enjoy it. So, without any further ado, here's episode two. Uh, no, there are guys like Kelly Dwyer and Henry Abbott, and even Jay Skeets of the starters and guys like that that were doing it before me that I kind of modeled myself after. I think even realistically, if, if you really want to be honest about Bill Simmons, you yeah. know, like his style, he would never call himself a blogger, but that style was really influential. Um, of being a little bit more loose, of being a little bit more voice-oriented. Um, Did he influence been, you? Yeah, huge, honestly. Um, I was in college when his when he first started doing his columns on ESPN, and like we'd never read, my friends and I had never read anything like it, and so it was hugely influential to read somebody that talked about sports in the same way we did and wasn't so buttoned up, and um, that was, you know, the, the jokes and stuff were really, uh, I think, influential in, in building and just the, you know his love of the NBA I think helped drive it too so like I have to give a lot of credit to Simmons he seems like the godfather of like a lot of this I mean the NBA sort of sensationalism but I think a lot of people my age are in this game solely because of him yeah I, I think he deserves a lot of credit I think there's gonna be people that are gonna object to that and be insulted by that that don't like him and that's okay we can all like different people and dislike different people but 
uh, I can only speak to my experience, and, and I think he was hugely influential. I've been doing it for – I started blogging uh, 11 years ago, so it's been over a decade, and I, that hit me before the season. That was kind of stunning to realize I've been doing this for a decade. And was it your blog, or did, were you writing for someone else? When no, you yeah, so I was getting married, and uh, I was working in an office and doing a normal office job, and uh, I was in Austin, Texas, and I was going to the bars a lot. <laughs> and my wife, my fiance, was like, look, man, I'm okay with it sometimes, but, like, you can't be closing down the place. Like, you can't have a key to the joint, which, like, my local bar had given me a key. That's a <laughs> Like bad, a literal key? Yeah, like, key? that's a bad sign. Yeah, that's not good. Um, so I was like, all right. Well, I was talking to a friend, and, and he liked basketball a lot, too. And I was like, I read all these blogs, and I was like, hey, do you want to start an NBA blog with me? I was like, there just aren't a lot of general NBA blogs. And he was like, sure. And so we debated on what to call it, and I finally kind of came up with I We actually had settled on Upside and Motor as our name. But somebody else had already snagged the Blogspot title. That's how old I am, Blogspot. Uh, and so I couldn't grab that one, but it just came to me one night, Hardwood Paroxysm, so I grabbed that one and um, just started writing. And then when I started writing, I just found that I didn't really want to stop, that I just kept wanting to keep going. Like, I just, it was what I wanted to do. I couldn't get enough of writing, and specifically writing about the NBA. So um, how much I enjoyed it really fueled how I keep de- kept doing it. So HP was the first project of yours. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I I was like an SB Nation commenter mm. on a couple of sites. Um, I, I popped around to a few places, and so I knew I kind of had gotten my feet wet a little bit with like fan shots and stuff like that. Of just like, oh, I kind of like I like writing about sports. Um, but paroxysm was the first thing that I kind of started building as like a, a real. Let's you know, I, I'm going to do this, and I had no expectations for it leading anywhere. I just wanted to do it, and um, I wanted to write, and so. Um, and at this point, it's just it. you and your buddy. Like it's not yep. the HP that it is yep. now. Right? No, yeah. for the first year, it was just me and him, and then uh, halfway through the year, like I started in October, and then I think in it was January or February. It was f- it was March. That's when it was. It was March because I got hired the next month. Um, I was talking to Tom Ziller because I'd done like a roundtable. I started inviting other writers on to do like, hey, would you do a roundtable with me about this with a bunch of different sites? And they were like, sure, because. It wasn't a big deal then. Nobody's time was really that valuable. And I was talking to Tom Ziller, and at the time, I was kind of talking to SB Nation about bringing paroxysm over there. And we had some snags in the talks about that um, over some various issues. And I was talking to Tom, and I was like, yeah, well, my goal eventually is, like, I would love to write it somewhere like Fan House. That's my long-term goal because AOL Fan House was a big deal then. And uh, Tom was like, wait, you want to write for Fan House? And I was like, yeah. He's like, hang on a second. Just, and, he, and he just hooks and you he, up? And he goes away, and then 10 minutes later, I get an email from Matt Watson, who was the editor there, was like, hey, can you start on, like, Saturday? And that was it. And that was, like, my first paying job writing, which, like, I just fell ass backwards into it. And, and what does this look like writing for you at this point? Like, I know uh, what you look like now as a writer, but at this point, what's your process? Um, so a lot of it was, you're talking about, like, aggregation microblogging, so you're just writing off of whatever it is that is newsworthy and whatever you notice. And so what you're doing is, like... Uh, I had a day job, so I would get up at like. Wait, what was the day job? Uh, I worked in data research for a nonprofit. Okay. Um, so I basically managed survey data. Um, boring. Riveting stuff. Yeah. Really boring work. But it was pro- here's the deal: is it was project management. So, like they told me this when I started, they're like, "You're gonna have six months where you're gonna have to like bust it, and it's gonna be really hard. But then you're gonna have three months where you're not gonna do much of anything." Mm. And that was kind of what happened: was like I would have these peaks and valleys of like one month I'd be really busy. And then the next month it would be nothing. Um, but when I, even when I was, when I was busy, I would get up at like 6 a.m. and write in the morning. And then I would spend my lunch break and I would write. And then after, uh, 
I got, and then after work, I would come home and I would usually write a post um, before we got, went out and got dinner. And then, you know, my fiance goes to bed and I would stay up and write all night. And are you thinking yet, all right, this is maybe going to turn into something or is it all fun? It wasn't until the next year that I started to really feel like I could do it. It wasn't until the 08, 09 season that I was like, I really think I might be able to do this. Like, this is something that, like, I'm having – because part of it is I, I honestly never had any sort of success at anything. Mm. Like, that's one of the reasons I continue to do this is I tell people, I'm like, I'm not good at anything else. Right. Like, this is what I'm good at. Um, and you can debate how good I am at this, but I'm definitely better at this than I am at other things. Um, so I wind up, like, thinking, okay, I can do this. Like, maybe this is something that I could possibly work towards. Um and I hit like frustrating periods where I really was like, I want to do this. Why, you know, why isn't this opportunity coming out for me? And then like, I'd have to pass on things because when you've got a wife and you're like looking, you can't go back to where you were at 22, 23 yep. and take those kind of steps backwards. And so I passed up opportunities cause I was like, that's not the right one. And, and I would get desperate. And every time I, I got there and I was so frustrated, I would email Tom and be like, what do I got to do? And he was like, you can't focus on that. Like the only thing you can do is write. Yep. It's like, if you want a job, like you need to write. Yep. That's all you can do. Write more. You're writing a lot, write more. Well, Cause like you said, that first opportunity you just sort of fell into. And mm-hmm. I think that's sort of what, so if you're out there and you're wondering what does it take to get into this, you just start writing. That is yeah. step one. And like you said, that sticks with you the whole way. And there are guys like one of the reasons I, I think I've, I've managed to, to luck my way into stuff is, is in part, um, because I try and be friendly as much as people in my Twitter personality <laughs> may not convey that. Uh, I try and be, be friendly and supportive. Like I want everybody to succeed and I think that creates good relationships, but there are guys that don't do that. They're just like, I just write like they're moody and they don't talk and they're not very personable people, but they're hugely successful because the writing stands out. And if you just keep publishing stuff and it gets spread, then you're going to wind up, people will notice how good you are at stuff and and they'll want to read you and those opportunities will come. Do you struggle with at all? Shout out to the catering staff here at Pepsi Center. Do you struggle at all with, um, you're a personable guy, like you said, and writing is a lonely experience. I know for me, like I've enjoyed diving into this head first, but it's a lot of me by myself in my underwear blogging. And like, do you ever, I know you have a family, but do you ever wish you had sort of taken a more sociable path? It's an interesting question. No. And the answer is like, I'm, uh, I have extrovert qualities, but I'm by and large an introvert. Yeah. And so I'm well suited to this job. Like I'm well suited to watching a basketball game and writing about it and taking notes and doing research and, and that kind of stuff, like diving into a subject and just kind of absorbing myself into it. Um, I'm really good. Like some of the best reporters in this business are here where they are um, because of that social quality. Like there's guys that just the players love, the fans love, the media loves. We were talking about that the other night with the art of the sidle, right? Yeah. The art of the sidle. Like Mark Spears is just a guy like, you're not going to find anybody that doesn't like Mark Spears. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find anybody that doesn't think Mark Spears is awesome because Mark Spears is awesome. And there's a lot of guys in this industry that are just good people that are fun to talk to and are warm, engaging personalities. I am not that. <laughs> um, so that's why I've kind of leaned more towards the like analyst side of it is you have to kind of do what you're good at. And I'm, I'm better at look at stuff and analyzing than asking specific questions. When does the analysis start creeping into your work? Because you said it's aggregation when you started. Yeah, so a lot of it is like you, you pick up on trends, you watch you watch as much as humanly possible. And a lot of it is like uh, there are people that would say, do you even know what you're talking about? And the answer I would give is like, I hope so. Right. Like if you watch stuff over and over again and you and I will say this, you don't really understand stuff until you start being able to bounce stuff off of coaches and players. Mm. Um, because there are assumptions that you go in with that when you talk to them you find out like that's not true and so you you 
you post a trend or you look at the, you look at the numbers and then you watch the tape and you look at it as much as you can. Um, like in back of the day before I had access to like scouting services, uh, you know, it was, I would DVR 10 games and you're just going through and you're like, wait, what happened there? Wait, what happened there? Okay. Who screwed up there? All right. Wait, how did he do this? And you're just going over and over and over and over it. And you, you, you write about what you can feel confident about. Um, and your analysis back then even, I think was real general. And then now it's gotten more and more narrow right. to where now you see guys that are super on like, Oh, here's how they ran horns. And I think that's too far. Cause I don't necessarily know that most fans are going to be able to identify or want to consume it at that level. So I try and, and gear towards, look, you think this team's really good at defense, but they're actually not. And here's why, or you think this player is really great at defense, but it turns out there's some issues and here's why the numbers say that that's not true. Weird question, but is it important to you to be correct versus, okay, it's a point of pride that I put the work in to go, I at least, this is an educated guess at, at bare minimum. It's an interesting question with, with where I'm at, especially now trying to do, trying to do the gambling analysis. Um, I think it's important to me that I'm able to feel like I had good reason for being wrong. That's the best way I can put it. Right. Like, um I listen to 538's pod a lot, and Silver talks about this, and people have various opinions on Nate Silver, but you know, one of his things is like, well, look, the model wasn't wrong. The 15% chance occurs. Um, like, we're recording this on uh, what day? Monday? Yeah. We're recording on Monday, and tomorrow's election day, and like, you know, there's an 85% chance that the Democrats take the House. But there's a 15% chance that that doesn't happen. Right. Which, if the Republicans keep the House, which whatever but like <laughs> if that were to occur that doesn't mean that silver's model was wrong right it means the 15 percent occurred and so um if i think like oh this matchup's going to be a now monday or saturday that's a really great example of this where i thought that the jazz were going to carve up denver with their pick and roll action because denver was playing up and i asked malone about pregame and then by and large the nuggets did the exact opposite of what malone said and they dropped a lot mm. and they contained it but there was also times when just like the hedge worked and it shows you the difference between you can think that something's going to occur based off of a team's success, but if they don't execute it correctly, it's not going to matter because people miss that part where it's the game is, yes, it's like 20% tactics, um, 20% effort, um, 20% execution, um, and then like 20% variance. Right. And so like you have to have all of those things go. You have to be able to win in a bunch of those areas in order for you to come out with a victory. Let's go back to HP for a second. At what point does it become the HP that we all know of now, this sort of system for getting more people's work out there, for helping people? So the second year I decided, I was like, I want to bring on more people. And I really liked Rob Mahoney, who um, the other guy had just basically not used Upside Motor. And then Rob had snatched it while we, we had a paroxysm and he'd started a blog. And I knew, and I, like, I just checked on it and was like, what? This is a new thing. And then I read his stuff and was like, this is great. This is really great. Um, and there were other people that had written things that got linked by Yahoo or, or by True Hoop or somebody else. And I had emailed them and kind of built a relationship and knew they were good. So like the second season, I brought on Rob Mahoney and I got named Greg and Gordian, who used to write, write at a site called 48 Minutes of Hell about the Spurs. Um, I brought on... Um, Holly McKenzie, who works with the Raptors in Toronto um, and has been covering that team forever. And so I had her as kind of like the emotional core. Like she wrote very emotional driven narrative stories. Uh, Graydon wrote basically esoteric stuff. Rob wrote kind of uh, deep level, the same stuff he writes now, like a deep level analysis with really brilliant prose. And then I found an analytics writer who now works for a team. I can't say who, but he works for an NBA team. And, um, they all like it was really cool to do that and then 
when they all went on to bigger and better things, I liked that. So I was like, I'm gonna bring on more. And I just brought on different waves of folks. And, and we were really fortunate that to be able to give people a voice and a platform that their work got shared. And so at, uh, the final count was 44 people went on to have part-time or full-time positions in sports at one point or another. Now, some of those folks have moved on and do other things. And some folks just transitioned. And some folks, you know, they had their shot and didn't make it. But we gave people an opportunity to do that. And I'm really proud of that. Often when you talk to creative people, bands, actors, they sort of romanticize and reminisce on those early days, right? The garage era. Is that sort of how you look at that era for you and your career? No, um, because I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> and I think a lot of it was you do the best you can, but you do have to make assumptions. And I want to know as much as I can about stuff. And the tone was different. Um, we were a lot more loosey-goosey with just subject matter and stuff like that. And so for me, I'm much more proud of the work that I've done it's really weird because like CBS corralled so much of what made me kind of wild and right. like a really distinct voice because I had to tone down my approach yeah. to fit in with the eye with the network that runs Big Bang Theory. But <laughs> um, at the same time, it also it honed me and it helped me figure out what I was good at because like there are times when I wish I could write like Tom Ziller or Rob Mahoney or um, Ethan Strauss, right? Like those guys that write really brilliant stuff. And at CBS is kind of where I learned that like. I learned what I was good at and it helped me be more precise in how I need to approach things that you don't get to be good at everything. And I tried to be really good at everything for about the first five years of my career. I tried to be good at everything. But was there a point at CBS where you're looking back and going, cause I wonder this about you, like you said, you corralled by the eye, right? Restrained, but that's not you. Was there, was there any point during the CBS era where you're looking back at HP and sort of missing that yeah, time? I mean, I was really excited to build at CBS. Like CBS didn't, we like they didn't have a blog platform, so I pitched having one, and they were like, "All right, sure." Right. And then when we did traffic, they were like, "Oh, this works." But the difference was because it took them so long to figure out that it worked, they hadn't built any sort of systems to corral us, so we had complete control and freedom for a long time. And so, like, we just tried stuff. We just did different stuff. We just and we were and there was a real energy there. At, at Paroxysm, it was so much about like. Uh, like just trying to do something different and that CBS is about trying to do something good. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was kind of the key is like, I didn't waste my time at paroxysm with doing generic, like stuff that was necessary, like new stuff, because why would you like, nobody's going to go there to read it. Right. They were going there in case I, if I had a really good hook or a really good headline or, or some sort of like an approach that they, they, they wanted to read. So when you're at CBS, who's we, you said we, it becomes fun. What's that group at CBS? Um, so when I got hired, they said, how many guys do you need? And I was like, I need, I need two more. I was like, I want these two guys. And the first guy was Royce Young, who at the time was writing a Daily Thunder, and I knew he was excellent, and I knew that he would do a great job. Like, he had shown the ability to do basically news bullets every single day, and that, like, that was really, I was like, that's what we need. Like, you have to be able to do, that, like, news stuff every, <laughs> thanks, uh, every single day. Um, and so I, I brought him on and Ben Golliver was the other one because he was doing, he, he did the best coverage of the Blazers. I think I've honestly ever seen, I don't think there's ever been a better Blazers reporter than what Ben was doing at Blazers edge then, which was just com comprehensive. He would do in-depth well, features. He, I didn't realize he got his start at Blazers, yeah, yeah. Blazers edge and he went to us and then now he's at SI. Um, so I brought those two guys on. Um, yeah, I brought those two guys on and then they got better jobs than I did. Um, but like, uh, those are the first two guys that I brought on. And so they were there 
And then Ben got an offer from SI, and so he left. And we got Zach Harper to replace him. And then uh, Royce got a job with ESPN, and I brought on James Herbert, and James is still there, and Zach's over at The Athletic, and that's how that was. But those early days of CBS, like, those guys would never want to go back because I was a maniac. Like, <laughs> we worked insane hours. We, we wrote because I was determined for us not to fail, and I knew that to do that we had to be, like, omnipresent at CBS. There couldn't be a gap. There couldn't be a – we didn't have something. Like, every single thing. Like, Greg Oden got hurt, and we had – five columns out within like two hours of it because we were just obsessive about it. But that was really hard. It was long hours. And who are you competing? It's, is it Yahoo yet? Or no, we're not the thing. See, I've never really, I've never thought about competing Yeah, because like my thing has always been, there's clicks to go around. Right. Um, we can all like, people are going to click on Yahoo. They're going to click on us. Gonna, and like now if somebody was doing this, I'd be like, they're going to click on the ringer. They're going to click on bleacher report. They're going to like, you're not competing. Right. Everybody gets a share. What I was competing with was internal. I was competing with football mm. and I was going to lose every time out. And I knew that, but there were months where like I was the highest traffic rider on the site in June because football wasn't in session. And that's a big deal for a site that doesn't have any NBA contracts to get that kind of, of exposure. It showed that they needed to keep investing in us and keep the sport relevant at, uh, for the company. And do you have a sense yet that basketball is heading to this place that it's in now in terms of popularity and, and sort of hipness? Yeah. So like it was pretty clear. You could tell in the 2000s that the NBA was going to occupy a space on the internet that nobody else could um, because of trades. Like that's the big thing is like you're, there's player movement. Free agency and trades means you can remake your team at any point. And people love to do that. People love to armchair GM and do that. Like we do it. Like we do it all the time. I do it all the time. Yeah. It's what first got me started doing this was I would sit there in bef- like you would go into your Monday morning meeting and then the 10 minutes before that meeting started, I would be writing trade ideas. That was where I got started. So like that creates a whole new dynamic. Are you making enough money yet at CBS? Is it like, we don't have to talk figures. What a but question. I, no, no, no. But I mean, are you, uh, that's would, part of this process. Or oh, at CBS. Yeah, so yeah. I, took a, I took a pay cut Okay. To, to take my first full-time writing job. I took a pay cut, and it was scary as hell. Um, here's the story. So in the, it was the summer. It was like, what was it? It was May and June um, when we, this conversation was going on with CBS after I talked to them at a conference. And so we're like, uh, we're going back and forth on my wife like i'm not gonna i'm gonna lose benefits i'm taking a pay cut but she had a really good job and she was like okay i think we're in a place where we can do this like we can pull this off and she was like we have to really like clamp down and she's an alarmist so she overestimated but like that was a really tough decision but i was like i think this is my best path for me to have a career because i don't see myself going anywhere um so we did it yeah two months later she was pregnant right so I the found, first kid or, yeah. yeah so like that was like a that was like a whole like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was really, and you know, working on contract, I lost even more because I got to pay social security, uh, out of your own pocket. And so like, it was a, it was scary, but I was still making money writing about the NBA. So I couldn't complain. The fatherhood thing is interesting. This gig is for me personally, it takes so much of my life. Mm-hmm. I put everything I have into this mm-hmm. and often it doesn't feel like enough. Mm-hmm. I literally can't fathom having to manage a family on top of that. So what's crazy is the first six months of my uh, son's life. Uh, he was too young for daycare, and my wife was obviously going to work. So guess where he was? With you. I watched my son full time while I wrote full time wow. for CBS. I did the same thing when my daughter was born. I've done it twice now. I would not recommend. That's a two star experience. Do not do that. Um, but if you have to, but we had to. Um, and so basically, what would happen is like 
I would spend as much quality time with them. I would schedule my shifts around whenever I could, whenever my wife was going to be home. And then the rest of the time was basically like, check on him, go write a paragraph, check on him, go write a paragraph, get him lunch, write a paragraph while he's eating, go back. Like it was madness. That's what you have to do if you want to make it work. That's wild. That's, has it gotten any easier for you? Yeah. I mean, it's always easier with the second gig because you, you know what you're doing. Uh, I'm just I'm in a better position now to be able to handle stuff too. Like I don't have shifts. Like I'm a feature writer now. So I write when I when it's more more better for me. Gotcha. So when you're at CBS, are you, in some sense, you've made it, right? I yeah. Mean, so are you like, I can, I can make this work? Are you itching to get to the next gig? Are you itching to, you know, a, a bigger payday? I mean, I would have, I, I would have stayed at CBS indefinitely. Okay. And honestly, like, I don't have high expectations of, of pay. Like, if I wanted, I, I say this all the time with people that are in other industries when they're frustrated. I'm like, then why are you in that industry? Like, if I wanted to make money, I would go learn to be a programmer I, I would yeah, yeah i would do i'd be a programmer i would go work in banking yeah i would go do something that i would loathe like i'm not you i'm not in the sports writing business to make money yeah, yeah. um a lot of that's like my dad worked for 40 years he was a he had, at the end of his thing he was a data programmer and um a systems builder he was a vice president of fedex when he retired he was a farm kid from missouri that wound up as a vice president of fedex without ever having graduated college and he worked 40 years, long hours, and hated it almost all the way because he was like, I want to make a life for you and, and your mom. And I appreciate everything he gave me and definitely my privilege in being able to do some of the things I've done is because of that. And I have to recognize that. But at the same time, I also chose, like, I want to make a little less money and be a, and be around my kid a little bit more. Uh-huh. And so I made that decision, and it's worked out pretty well. Um, at CBS, I was mostly just like, I will do this. I want, to be, I want us to be successful. Like, I wasn't – I wanted – Honestly, I was never really about trying to compare myself to other people. I didn't want to be thought of as – I'm still not. Like, I'm never going to be Sam Amick. I'm never going to be Adrian Wojnarowski. I'm never going to be Sham Strana. I'm never going to be uh, Lee Jenkins. I'm never going to be – I'm never going to be Zach Lowe, who is the person I'm most often compared to. Right. Um, like, I'm fine being a C-level Zach Lowe uh, because, like, I want the people that like my work to like my work. I want to be satisfied with the work that I did at the end of the day. Um, and I want to be there for my family, and I've managed to find a balance between that so far, knock on wood. I think you hold a different position, though, than the guys you named. I mean, one thing I, I've sort of always admired about you is you drive the conversation every day. And so Twitter is something that can be uh, made fun of, probably as it should be. And it's a very, very small percentage, right, of the actual basketball fans out there. And sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking it's that it, it's matters. representative, yeah. right? But for those of us that are into it in this way, I mean, you're on there every day driving the conversation. I mean, do you take pride in that at all? Or? Here's what I take pride in. Um, so when I, when I went to Action, the same thing held true that was true at CBS because uh, they've run a lot of the analytics on my numbers. And there's guys that will write 10 columns and it will do nothing and no one will notice and no one will care. Uh, and then their one column will go huge and it's a big deal and everyone talks about it and it's like that's a huge success. What we found with me is it's kind of the opposite where a large number of people are going to read my stuff no matter what I put out. If I write about the Wizards, if I write about the Kings, if I write about the Hawks, if I write about the Lakers, Lakers a little bit more. But if I write about most teams, I'm going to pull the same numbers. I'm going to have a study. So like, there's people that genuinely are just like, oh, I want to read what Matt has to say about this. And that blows my mind. Right. Like, that's wild to me. That's something I'm proud of. The cool thing about, not to make it about me for a second, but so at Denver Stiffs, I obviously do something 
radically different from what you do. But there's this interaction with the fans. And we had our first Stiffs Night Out, and when someone comes up and they go, oh, I read your work, that moment where it changes from a statistic to, oh, wow, there's a, there's a real human out there that's a fan of a team or a fan of this league, and they consider my content to be like worthy of their time. I mean, that's a really cool feeling. It's insane. It's just it's just wild. Anybody would care what I have to say, and I'm so appreciative for every positive thing that's like ever given to me. Like any sort of positive uh, word that's given to me, and like my brother-in-law was also helpful about this because I got really down one time about the kind of negative comments I was getting. It was about Twitter, and he was like, "You wind up focusing on that too much." He's like, "There are so many people that read you that don't comment." He's like, "Think about all the people that just read your thing and was like, oh, that was good. Right. That's it. Right, exactly. Like, that's it.'" And I was like, "Oh, and that was a really game-changing thing for me." So you have gotten better at, at the feedback thing. Oh yeah. Now I don't. Now it doesn't. But like, I get, I get annoyed when I get, I get there are certain things that that trigger me, which I don't like using that phrase because it's ignorant of people to deal with actual triggers. But like, there's certain things that really bug me. Like, if you say that I haven't done the work, I get mad. Right. If you say that uh, I'm just saying this because of like, I I try and be as intellectually honest and transparent on Twitter about that that work as I can be. Right. And that's what I need to do. At what point does HP approach you? What year? When did you join? Or, I'm sorry, not HP, Action Network. Uh, so it was last year. I've been on like a one-year contract year after year after year after year after year after year. Um, and I was getting pretty nervous. I was getting pretty like nervous again. And it's being around me when I'm worried about my contract when you have two kids. It's not fun. Mm. Um, and my contract at CBS actually lapsed. It expired uh, because they were trying to figure some stuff out. And so are you like freaking out? Oh yeah. I was, I was a maniac. Um, and what was funny was I freaked out more the year before. Like I was unbearable the year before and I was just miserable. And then I like, we just, I got a new deal for one year and was like, all right, I'm just going to try and focus on the work. And then I wrote the Kawhi thing and the Kawhi thing blew up and that changed a lot of the perception about me. So anyway, it's like, it's November and Chad Millman who worked at ESPN started with and founded action network. Um, direct messages me and is like, hey, love your work. I'd love to talk. And I'm thinking, like, I'd seen the Action Network stuff kind of start because I run in the circles. And I was like, oh, it's like a startup. But he's like, he wants to offer me, like, an affiliate deal or something. Um, and so I was, like, dealing with a whole bunch of stuff. My dad had a heart attack and, and everything. And uh, it was, like, right before Thanksgiving. My daughter was actually, like, hanging on me as the, these DMs come in. I was like, I'll deal with it later. Yeah. Well, he hits me up on my other account and asked me about it again. And is like, hey, would really like to get in touch with you. And I'm like, what? Did, I'm like, I, I will deal with this later. Um, and he actually reached out to another reporter and got my email. I was like, hey, I need Matt Moore's email. And he emails me and asks, hey, would love to get in touch with you. And I was like, God, okay, man. This here, guy. Look, Monday, you can call at 8 o'clock. Sure. Uh, so he calls, and he made the pitch, and it was wildly not what I thought it was. And he had me hooked almost immediately. And by the end of the conversation, um, provided that my talk with the editor and then I, I got an offer, I was pretty sure I was leaving. Because you're doing more than, you know, it's the gambling-centric stuff, but you're mm -hmm. writing your, your Yeah, pieces. so his, his pitch to me, it, our whole thing is, like, we want to make sports fans smarter. Yeah. And if you're smarter, you can invest in it better. And so his thing to me was, like, I just want you to make NBA fans smarter. I just want you to do it for us. He's like, I want you to do what you're doing now at CBS. I just want you to do it for me. And that's what I've done. Do you have this realization of, man, it was me hitting people up for so long to get my foot in this door and now this this dude is emailing me and well, that's I don't the first time. time like like this it's the first time i've ever been kind of approached yeah so um it's cool to feel valued man i'm sure it after that was while. really important to me for yeah. because part of it's you know i was around for my son and all that but like 
I'm gone for the playoffs every year. And there was a lot of times when it was like, I can't be, I can't go to this thing because Greg Oden got hurt. I can't go do this because, uh, Anton Jamison just got traded. Um, I would, I would, we would go on vacation to the beach and I would be like, well, I can go, but it's free agency. So I got to stay like, I can't be hanging out. Um, and it was long nights and like, I hurt my health doing that. Like, uh, there was a trade deadline where I I was running a 101 degree fever and had to have a root canal from an infection. <laughs> Got that, had to come home and then work the rest of the day doing trade analysis. Like God. that's how it was. God, you know? that's crazy. So this Bucks piece you just recently wrote, Giannis. Yeah. What is so? I've never done anything like this. Obviously, what does it look like when you go on this trip? Like, do you have an idea of who you want to talk to and what you want to write already? Yeah. So. We're talking to it through an editor, and you need good editors. And our my editor Scott Miller was like, because I had all these ideas about more esoteric, like not esoteric, but like off-brand stuff. Because it's hard to get. Like I, I wasn't gonna get time with Giannis. That was just not gonna happen. Yeah. If I worked for ESPN, sure, I could be like, hey, I, I would like ten minutes with Giannis. But for me coming in, I've, having never been there, it wasn't gonna happen. So, but he was like, but Giannis is a huge story. I think writing something on the MVP would be good. And I was like, all right. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. And I realized I could get a lot more. And sometimes that's true where you can get a lot more information if you talk to the other guys. Right. And so I, I kind of platformed. I want to talk about the Bud and his changes. I want to try and do something on, on Malcolm Miller or uh, Malcolm Brogdon. I want to do something on um, Chris Middleton. And those are the, the two guys I want to target. And then, you know, something about the Bucks system under Bud. Uh, and as it turns out, just like talking to people, like these very clear kind of things came out. We're like, oh, like passing is going to be a huge part of Giannis' season. Right. And that helped drive kind of where the thing. And the more I got, I got into it, the more I realized that the changes that the system were going to bring for Giannis were maybe the most interesting basketball part of the analysis. So you have to be open to – you have your preconceived notions, but the, is the piece sort of writing itself as you're there, as you're talking? Like are you getting a better sense of like, all right, I have to take it in this direction? Like, yeah, so it was a good thing where it kind of came out that a lot of my – the things that I read and, and part of it is you do the research too. Like don't come in with your assumptions blind. So I read every single thing that was produced produced off of Bucks Media Day from the Journal Sentinel, from Brew Hoop, from the Bucks uh, fan side blog, from uh, everyone. I listened to Locked On Bucks episodes. I listened to other Bucks episodes. Like everything that I could catch up on from Media Day and from the first couple of days of camp was I absorbed. Like I'm a guy that researches extensively. The reporters just come in and are just like, I'm just gonna talk to the guy and see so, what happens. Yeah. I don't do that. Like I wanna know everything. So I already had stuff and it helps because when I come in and I tell I reference to Mike Budenholzer in a scrum with just me and two other people and I say, At Media Day, you say, and he knows I'm from out of town. He's been prepped. Like they've mentioned, hey, there's a guy here from out of town. Um he doesn't care, know or care who I am, but at least he knows that he doesn't have to repeat himself and he's not having to try and educate me on something that I haven't, like I've done the work. Right. You'd be amazed how far that goes with players and coaches if you know what they've said in the past on things that you ask about. Yeah, that's interesting. And how long were you in Milwaukee? Uh, I was got there on like a Sunday night and I left on a, I left the, the night of the game on Wednesday night. Okay. That's not bad. It's a quick little trip. That's part of his preseason. It's hard to really justify going out, right? It's preseason. Nobody cares. It's football season. Um, so I wanted to be able to get in. My original plan was to be like hit Milwaukee and then Indiana and then Cleveland. And then looking at the schedule, I couldn't get it to line up. So I was like, well, I definitely want to hit Milwaukee. So we'll just target this one. You were right, man. They look good. They, they are really they are good. off to an incredible start. So, so what's, are you going to write a similar type of piece? Like, what's next for you? Do you know? Yeah, so I'm trying to figure that out right now because part of it is, is we're in that weird thing where in November teams will 
some of the teams that are really good right now are going to be great in November, and some of the teams that are really good right now are going to come back to earth. Right. Like the Kings are a really intriguing target, small market, young team, interesting. But they could like go back to being the Kings at any moment. Uh, New Orleans was a team I was definitely looking at, but now they look like they're coming back down to earth. So the thing I, th- I think I really want to do, though, is, is figure out teams that don't make sense. Yeah. That either are bucking convention or are going against the grain or are not what people think. Denver Denver's kind of fits that mold, man. Oh, uh, that's why. I got some ideas. Yeah. I got some, and it's, it's, you know what's hard here being here? Is I don't write that much on the on the Nuggets because I can't risk being identified as like the Nuggets guy. Yep. Um, and there's ways to do it. Like Mark Stein, when he was based out of Dallas for years and years and years, like Mark would write about the about the Mavericks regularly. Like he was a national reporter for ESPN, but he wrote about the Mavs extensively. Um, and so there's ways to do it. And I try and give the Nuggets coverage on on stuff so that they have some attention here. Um, but you have to be kind of careful. But they're definitely they've earned more attention from me than than I, I've maybe given them in the past. A lot of people are feeling that way. So you talked earlier, man, so you talked about these guys who were working with at HP and them going on to get bigger and better jobs. Yeah. Do you think that's still possible? If, if no. you're, so if you're in my position, yeah, Denver Stiffs, Blazers Edge, you know, I mean. Um, so I think it is. It's, I, it's not possible to do it the same way. The model's a little bit different now, but there are still sites that are looking for good content. I think one thing that we're going to have to see, though, is, and we'll see it, is there's going to be a changeover in newsrooms. Because, like, right now, newsrooms are still hiring, basically. They'll look at things and be like, oh, this person's a good reporter, so I'm going to hire them to do this NBA beat without realizing that you have to be the right fit for the sport. Yeah. Like, I have a lot of experience about writing about sports. You couldn't put me in the NFL. Right. You can't drop me into doing NFL analysis. I can't do that. And there are I some papers that are literally just shuffling people Just shuffling around. folks in. And yeah. I think that we'll see. And a lot of that's because... They're run by old school newspaper managers that are like, oh, no, we re- recruit from a certain pool of people as opposed to looking for who does the best coverage. Um, and this is coverage professional. Like if you're a fan driven site, yeah, that's going to hurt you. Yeah. Like, you'll be able to, to keep your numbers if you and then maybe that's your passion is you want to build that up because there are guys that make a living covering it from a fan perspective. But there's a lot of, I think, quote unquote, fan sites that provide and Stiffs is one of them that provides real serious coverage of teams that's objective and critical and you know praises them when they deserve it and criticizes them when they deserve it and when you're providing that analysis that'll shine through i think that we're also going to see more vc money coming in Mm. so the athletic it's kind of thought of as like this one thing and it's a unicorn but we're going to see more of those like the action network is vc money like the like we're going to see a lot more sites because when i knew this was coming before i got hired by action when I was talking to somebody out in Vegas that works in the Valley and he's like, we don't understand it. I was like, what? He's like, all these sites have millions and millions of readers like ESPN and CBS and all these sites. They have millions and millions of readers. Um, and they can't figure out how to make money. You have that kind of audience and you can't make money. Something's off, of it. off here. Right. And so the, like the Valley really looks at it and is like, well, we can monetize that. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the coming years. So there'll be opportunities, but the field is also wider because more people had success. And so people are like, Oh, maybe I can do it. And right. If you're going to do it, the one thing you need to do is you need to be versatile while also having a defined niche, and walking that balance is difficult. Yeah, and at Stiffs, Adam and I have talked about this a lot. I mean, our sort of goal for ourselves has changed from how can we get hired to is there a way we can get people to value what we already do? Um, You know, because there's so many people out there that are, I don't know, you know, my dream would be to get hired by a site like The Ringer, but how do I get them to notice me with thousands of people in my shoes, you know? You have, to, you have to get lucky, but, you know, look, Kevin O'Connor wrote a Celtics blog and did right. a great draft breakdown for SB Nation. Um, you know, uh, Jason Concepcion was just brilliant on Twitter. That's how he got started. Uh, Danny Chow, an editor at The Ringer, wrote a paroxysm, and 
his work shined as being like well beyond the rest of what we did and that catapulted him um so if you keep doing the work you'll find it you have to get wins and that's the tough part is you need the the comedy like adam i think this is the thing is like you have to sometimes you're gonna pour your heart into something and nobody's gonna notice it but the other thing is like sometimes it's the right people noticing it so like right. my agadala thing i did a couple of years ago about his defense it wasn't widely read it just wasn't there wasn't that many that read it but everybody in the nba read it mm. everybody in nba media and like executives like uh, executives for one very popular team read that and it influenced some of their decision making um, which is not to say that it was like the reason but it was just part of the conversation and once you get into that circle like you'll get noticed more and more there's still a path is it harder yeah um, and those are things that I think everybody's got to balance but part of it's also like I don't hold myself in this thing of like well I made it and so you should be able to too right. like, no like look I was able to do this in part because I had a white collar job that Keep, a yeah. lot of people don't get to get and that allowed me to do things like I'm going to take my lunch break and go do a phone interview with Tyrus Thomas, like that made enough money to where I could afford league pass. Like the privilege is a huge part of my success huge story. Part. And huge. we're both, it should be said, we're both white males, man. Yeah. And I don't, don't need to be that look, drum. There, and, over the, and over the next 20 years, there's going to be fewer of me. And like, that's a good thing. Like, yeah. There needs to be fewer, especially where I'm at now. Like there needs to be fewer middle-aged white dudes. And like, I'm cognizant of that. And it's something I, I wrestle with every day. Right. Um, but at the same point, like people still want to read good content and they still want to do read people that they care about the content and put a lot into it. So I think there's still opportunities. Knowing how it all worked out, knowing how the landscape looks now, knowing you were going to have a family one day, if you had to go back and do this all over again, would you put all your eggs in this basket? Like in, in this, in this economy? So, <laughs> so my thing is I, I don't think I ever put all my eggs in the basket. I, my thing is I've always understood how fragile everything is. Mm. And so like, this is one thing I tell people is, look, I could get, like, my job could evaporate tomorrow. Yeah. And if that happens, like, I will make my requisite calls to the various people I know in the industry. And I have lots of people there that whenever I bring this up, are like, oh, you'd have a job in 30 seconds. I'm like, I don't believe that. Yeah. These jobs are hard to find. You have to have, you have to have the open space, a need for the content, and the capital to spend it on. Like, you have to, you have to commit to me the money and the benefits and the whole thing. And so, like... Uh, that would be my first call. But after that, like I'm looking for what I, I call real jobs. Like I'm going back to the grind, and that's just how it goes. It's so scary. There's no real making it. I mean, even but, once you but made it. But here's the other right? thing, it's though, like... is people people in our industry wind up talking about this a lot, and they're like, "This is why it sucks." It's like, look, I'm here to tell you. I watched when I worked in nonprofit industries. I saw people that did better work than me, and they got let go. Right. Because it was just how it felt. They needed to devote resources elsewhere. Everything is really fragile. You do not get security. That's how it works. So the only thing you can do is be satisfied with the work you did at the end of the day and try and be as happy as you can while you're doing it. You have to love what you're doing, right? I mean, it's not, like you said, don't pick this industry if you want to make money. It's that simple. All right, man, I, I like to close these pods with a segment called About the Author. Just fire some questions at you, get to s a sense of who you are outside of the basketball thing. First one, what is your scariest moment as a father? Ooh. Uh, my daughter was in the hospital with a respiratory virus. Okay. Um, my son was born and had to go to NICU. Uh, that was terrifying. Um, but my daughter being in the hospital, like, really messed me up just because there was nothing I could do. Um, and she's having trouble breathing. And that's just when you're watching, when you're sitting there by a machine watching oxygen levels. And there's, she was fine. Like, she was okay. And right. wasn't, wasn't, but and you like, can't get that. And in you here. can't get there. And, and so for me, like, that is 100% the scariest moment for me as a dad was, was, 
tracking her oxygenation levels on a monitor. Man, I can't even imagine having like so much of your own emotional stuff attached to another yeah. human like that. That's wild. Uh, most embarrassing moment as a media member. Uh, JJ Hickson dunked on me about my shoes. <laughs> just, I mean, dunked on me. He was just like, "What are you wearing?" Were they like Skechers? Or no, they were Chris Pauls. Okay, I don't even know. And he, know. I'm and not he a thought they guy. were just the lamest shoes in existence. <laughs> and it was after that that like I stopped trying to like wear like good basketball shoes. Yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. I can't do this. I can't pull this off. And so like now I just wear Air Maxes. And what I, can I'm you basically do like too? two steps from New Balance. <laughs> And there's nothing you can do, right? You just have to get dunked on. Like, yeah. you can't fire back. Um, the other one I think would probably be, I've been popped twice. Those are not great. Um, I've been blown off. Like, when you're blown off, it's pretty rough, especially when you have a relationship with a player. Like, there was a, there have been Nuggets players that just have blown me off before, and you think, like, you've built a relationship, and then you don't. That's a bummer. Yeah. You're made fun of a lot for every fan base thinks that you hate their team. Yeah. Which fan base do you struggle with the most? It rotates. Yeah. I'm going to do battle with Utah this year again. It's sad. I had a good three-year, like, truce with Utah. It's going to be them again this year. Um, Lakers fans are probably the worst. The Warriors fans, honestly, I have the hardest time with. Lakers fans and Warriors fans, they just tend to run and, like, they'll just call you misogynistic terms the quickest and make lots. And, like, I just can't abide that kind of conversation. Right. Um, It's not like, like, Jazz fans at least are adamant about the points. Like, they're just like, you don't get it. But... Lakers fans and, and and Warriors fans just tend to turn to insults really quickly. How do you kill time outside of basketball, outside of fatherhood? Um, I play Overwatch. Mm. It's my video game of choice. I'm playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey right now. Um, I need something where I can turn my brain off. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to read more. I'm working on a couple of books. I'm, re- I'm rereading Campaign Trail 72 by Hunter Thompson and um, Roxanne Gay's Bad Feminist. But, like... Um, those are things. The other thing I do a lot is I cook. I love cooking. Really, it's my. F- it's if you, uh, the 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 only thing I love about, love doing more than writing about basketball is cooking. I what love cooking. Go to dish. I make a uh, I make a harvest vegetable soup that's made with. Um, it's got a goat cheese finish on it. It's amazing. Like my my harvest vegetable soup will change your mind about how you feel about soup. All right. Final question. Something that you hate. Uh, something you hate culturally that everyone else seems to love. I mean, my first answer is Boban Morjanovic. <laughs> and it's not him like Boban's fine like super nice guy everyone likes him I just don't like the conversation about him like he's not a thing it's fine but like somebody posted in, in our HP Slack the other day posted like a photo of him with like a really short assistant I was like I get it he's tall I'm just tired of it like I get it he's tall I love that I gave you all of culture and you still went back to basketball. Listen, Matt, thanks so much for joining me, man. Sorry about all the distractions, but uh, I really appreciate this. You're the perfect perspective for this conversation, and it's been pretty cool getting to know you, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, dude. All right. Thanks again to Matt Moore for joining me for an awesome conversation. Uh, He's a really interesting guy and and a good dude as well, so I really appreciated that. I mentioned in episode one that I was going to have Katie Wingy on in episode two. Obviously, that wasn't the case. We'll get her for the next show. I'm going to sit down with her next week. Uh, Hey, check out the channel, the Denver Stiffs channel, part of the SP Nation Podcast Network. Leave a review and a rating, and uh, yeah, get it wherever you get your podcasts. We're excited to bring you some new content at the Stiffs this year. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys in two weeks for another episode of Full Court Press.